welcome everyone to Authors on the Air. I'm your host, Pam Stack. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Today, I have a lovely host sitting in for me. Um, Anne Hillerman is the New York Times bestselling author and daughter of the late Tony Hillerman. She has decided to pick up where he left off with his series, including Joe Leaphorn and Jim Chi. I am thrilled to welcome back to Authors on the Air, Ann Hillerman. Hi, Ann. How are you today? Hi, Pam. I'm fine. Thank you so much for having me on your show. What a treat. I'm so glad that you're back. Um, I want to tell listeners that uh, William Kent Kruger will be joining us shortly. He got tied up in a meeting and um, will be coming in on this show shortly. But it was a great opportunity for you and I to chat again and maybe discuss some of your work that we didn't have a chance to talk about before. Uh, But let me first have you tell listeners about how you started writing, because I don't think it was your intention to take over where your father left off originally, was it? No, it wasn't. I I guess I started writing, gosh, in elementary school. I think when you grow up in a family where you're surrounded by books and you're surrounded by stories, you writing just sort of comes second nature to you. And I have to say both of my parents were avid readers and very – uh, I, I guess I'd say natural storytellers. So I had, I had, I guess I'd say always been a writer, but I had never uh, ventured into fiction until after my father died. And what really propelled me was uh, a nonfiction book I did that was about the the wonderful places on the Navajo reservation that my dad used as settings for his mysteries. And uh, my husband, who's a professional photographer, and I went to a lot of those places, and my husband did, did the photos, and I talked to people. And of course, before I could do that, I had to, had to, got to reread all of my dad's wonderful stories again. So, uh, that book came out, uh, the year after my father died. So his, his stories, the voice that he had given all of those characters was very strongly in my head. So as you know, when a book comes out, if you're lucky, a publisher says you should go on the road and promote this book. So I was doing uh, book talks, talking about my nonfiction book. And at every talk, people would say, so are there going to be any more Jim Chi, Joe Leaphorn stories? Did your dad have something at the publisher? You know, will there be more books in this series? And I would have to say, well, no, dad really took care of business before he died. And then I could just really read the disappointment on the faces of all of his fans and After a while, I thought, well, I'm just like all these dear people. I'm really, besides missing my father, I'm really missing those stories. And so that, I guess that interaction with with people, with live fans who loved my dad, was what really gave me the impetus to think I could make the switch from writing nonfiction to writing fiction. It's interesting to me that... that, um... You had always read your dad's fiction, 
and yet you still had um, the nonfiction love of the people that your father loved as well. Uh, so it seemed like a natural change. Was it? Well, yes and no. I mean, as, okay. as you know, when you're when you're writing nonfiction, you have more. I guess I'd say more guidelines, more perimeters. Yes. Whereas when you're writing fiction. Um, and in a way, when you're writing mysteries, you do know uh, there are certain guidelines that the genre comes with. And you know if, if you're going to write a successful book or a book in the stream of, of the tradition of mysteries, you need to go with those guidelines. So I did have that to kind of anchor me. But in terms of you know coming, coming up with the stories and then um, – uh, I had because my dad had a, a minor character who I really loved. Her name is Bernadette Manuelito, and when I decided that I was going to be brave enough to see if I could write a mystery in in his tradition, I I knew I could never be Tony Hillerman. So I thought if I can bring this new character up as a crime solver, it'll give me a way to continue the series, but give it a little different twist. So I don't have to be exactly the same writer my father was. So anyway, that 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 helped. And that, I mean, having those, I did have some anchors. But then because uh, Dad had not done much with Bernie Manuelito, I needed to give her a backstory to give her – and to create some other supporting characters. So it was, I guess, a combination of having some, um, what can I say, some uh, lifeboats out there in the big world of fiction and then just doing some strong swimming on my own. You know, um, you you are the one of six children, is that correct? You have five yeah, si siblings? Right. Are any yeah. of your other siblings writers or creatives the way you and your father are or were? Well, um, I'd say they're all creative in their own way, and you know, in right. the way that they've sure. they've uh, cr created their lives. My sister, who's closest in age to me, um, is a did did a lot of work as a as a painter. She did some illustrations wow. for for one of one of my dad's books. But my siblings were all adopted, so while we had ah. the same sort of nurturing environment to yes. grow up on, I think you know they're they're uh, very different. Genetics probably also played a factor in where their strengths were. My one brother is a mechanic. My one brother is a pharmacist. And I, I mean, my dad, I loved my dad, but he would have died if he'd had to rebuild an engine, you know. <laughs> and and you my had a mechanic in the family. <laughs> it was a good thing. It was a right. good thing. <laughs> what was it like growing up with someone so beloved and so famous as Tony Hellerman? Well, when I was first growing up, I mean, I, my dad was always beloved by, by us, but his, his first career was in journalism. So mm -hmm. he wasn't, I mean, he was, he, he did well in that career, but it wasn't the same kind of attention you get when you're on the New York Times bestseller list. So by the time he really didn't get to be known as an author until I was already uh, – I'd already launched my own career in journalism. And that was when he first started – people started first you know, knowing, recognizing his name. So for me, it was um, 
it was it was fine. I didn't have to deal with you know being the the daughter of somebody famous. I think my siblings, who all are younger, dealt with a little bit of that. Um, yeah, it, but I was I was so happy. I mean, he had wanted to write fiction. Uh, oh gosh, I think from when he first was in college, that was his dream. So I was wow. just delighted that he was able to, uh, you know, to bring it to bring it bring it forward and really, uh, you know, enjoy, uh, you know, having people say, "Oh, I love your stories." He always Absolutely. got a that. Yeah. Who wouldn't want that? You know, who wouldn't want that? Um, I want to talk about your book for right now because you you and I spoke when your book just came out, and now you are hurriedly <laughs> on a deadline to finish up the next one. Um, I'm assuming this is again your 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 continuing on with the stories. Can you give us a little hint about what we should expect when the book releases uh, come April or May, hopefully April? Well, sure. Um, so the the book that you and I talked about last was the the Tale Teller, and that right. was the book in that was the book in which I brought back the character with whom my dad opened his series, Joe Leaphorn. Joe had had a lot. I had, I gave Joe a lot of trouble, but in the Tale Teller, he was uh, the main crime solver. So in the book I'm working on now, and I still am am playing with the title of it, but in in this book. Uh, Bernadette Manmolito is back again as the main person who is uh, trying to figure out who done it and, and why. And one of the elements of the plot involves this uh, fabulous uh, installation of telescopes called the Very Large Array, which is in out in the middle of nowhere on purpose in central New Mexico. And these are telescopes that pick up uh, radio waves that come from space. So they're very sensitive, and uh, they were the telescopes that first found a black hole. They first discovered something called the Einstein ring, which is yes. a. I mean, anyway, it's a. It is just ready meant for a mystery. It's such a such a fine location. So uh, my story involves a a scientist who works there, and uh, something terrible happens to him. And then Bernadette Manolito gets involved because there there are some uh, he's connected to some Navajos who live on a a reservation in that part of New Mexico, and uh, so as I've been working on this story, I've also been able to write about um, Navajo star lore and how so much of it is uh, really fantastically connected to modern astronomy. So I'm I'm having a lot of fun with this book, and I have to say I'm learning a lot about things that I didn't even know I didn't know. <laughs> That's the best <laughs> part of it all. We should be learning something new every day, right? <laughs> right. Now, right, right. you were recently just named the recipient of the Frank Waters Award uh, for 2019, and your dad was also nominated in, uh, he was the honoree in 1998. Um, how must that feel to know that you, the legacy is there and it's in you? I was, of, I, you know, um, how can I say this politely? A lot of times writers get awards, and the, one of the reasons behind that award is that whoever is giving it wants you to come and give them a free talk. 
Right. And, but this award, this award was nothing like that. This really was was an award given by the uh, Pikes Peak Library Foundation, and these people were are like avid and devoted readers of southwestern southwestern literature, and. I, normally, normally I'm pretty stoic, but I have to say this award had me in tears. Aww. I was just so I was so honored and humbled to be uh, in the sa- considered in the same category as my dad, as Frank Waters, who was a wonderful, wonderful writer. He also started out as a journalist and wrote a lot of books about the the people and traditions and culture of the Southwest. Margaret Cole, a wonderful uh, writer from Colorado, also has received this award. So, yeah, I'm still. I, whenever I see it, I just I'm I'm. I don't know, humbled, I guess is the word, and amazed that that uh, the wonderful people at that library uh, thought, thought that I was worthy of it. And also, I have to say, it's a big incentive to make every book that I work on now better than the one before. Better, better. better. At one point, you were, um, you kind of did tours for your neighborhood, didn't you, for your city? <sighs> well, or you not were a so travel much for, guide? The, for the city, it was... Um, that nonfiction book that I, that I mentioned to you right. earlier was uh, uh, when that book came out. This group called Road Scholars asked asked if my husband and I would like to go with 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 their uh, attendees on the bus and talk a little bit about my dad and about the experiences that we had had in the Navajo Nation. So I think Don and I, my husband and I, did that for a couple of years, and you know. We learned so much. Those tours were wonderful because the people who were on them, a lot of them were people who had read and loved all my dad's books. Some of them were people who had uh, maybe worked in public health on the Navajo Reservation or um, had some connection. So they really had deep, deep affection for the Southwest. And they knew a lot about a lot of things, again, that I really needed to learn about. So I would say it was a very um, symbiotic relationship where they would, I would tell them stories about my dad and they would tell me stories about what it was like to work in Crown Point or Window Rock and to be, you know, delivering a baby in a hogan with no electricity or running water. I mean, it was, it was really a wonderful, wonderful experience. And I think um, all of that, that being, again, spending more time on the reservation really helped me add um, – Oh, what can I say? Add some, add some, some big doses of reality to my fiction. So more depth. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. More depth. That's a good way to put it, Pam. Um, and what do the Navajo people think of your father and your storytelling? Um, let me talk about about my father first. Um, okay. When when he when he uh, made uh, Joe Leaphorn this Navajo policeman, his main detective, he, it was like a a revolution in American mysteries. I mean, before that, most of the protagonists had been urban men with uh, maybe a drinking problem and a you know and a wandering eye for women. So here was this uh-huh. guy in the desert, a native guy who didn't drink, who had a, a, a real strong uh, cultural foundation. So um, the, and the the Navajo people were very. 
uh, delighted, I would say, to see one of their own as a as a hero, not as a supporting character, not as a, a villain, which, as you know, so often Indians were portrayed as villains. So sure. the, the Navajo, yeah, the they taught my dad's books in the in the in the Navajo schools. So when my books came along, I they, my dad had already uh, laid the groundwork. So they were they again have been have been very well received. One thing that always makes me smile, if I do a book signing, say, in Farmington or in Gallup, in a, a community that's on the edge of the Navajo Reservation, there will be quite a few Navajo readers in the audience. And often after I've done my little talk, um, a Navajo mom and her daughter and then the daughter's grandmother will come up and they'll ask if they can have their picture taken with me. And it just it really makes me smile. I think there was a real um, a real in, in the Navajo culture, women have have a, a strong position of power and prestige. And I think the Navajo society, Navajo readers were really ready to see a strong Navajo woman rise to being on an equal level with the wonderful characters who my dad had created back in the 1970s. You know, it was uh, a nice... Yeah, it was a nice way to, to, to bring it up. Your gut instinct was right then to cre- to bring that character forward. Yeah, I think so. I think so, and I sure have loved working with her. I feel like oh. she's, I feel like she's part of my family now. I bet you do, and I like that you're using her as your know, main character, but not losing the um, uh, Lee Porn and Chi along with it. They are absolutely integral to the books as well. But uh, it sure is nice to have a strong female character who can kind of open the door for new adventures. And I think that also brings in more readers of all kinds, don't you? I do. I do. I just got a uh, an email from my French publisher saying that they are going to translate the tale teller into into French. So I'm I'm excited about that. The other books have already been made available in in French. So it's it's nice to think that these stories not only are resonating with uh, with readers in the United States, but that now they're they're stretching out overseas. I think it's wonderful because it is really strictly Americana. There it, there is nothing like indigenous peoples um, to be telling stories about whether it's fiction or nonfiction, but particularly fiction that's so beloved here and it's going overseas. I think it gives a a really different picture of, of America than, than uh, you know, hard world crime or anything else. Don't you? I do. I do. And and I have to say one thing that I also have enjoyed about writing uh, about Navajo characters and writing about law enforcement in more isolated areas is that because there's not so much technology, the detectives have to use their wits a little more. You know, they're not not always waiting for the crime lab to come back with results. They're looking at the the 
the personality factors and the background of the person who's been who's been killed or injured and the people who they think might have done it and for me anyway it makes writing a lot more fun to be focusing on the psychology of the characters you're writing about rather than thinking about what what kind of weapon and what kind of bullet and what kind of explosive and you know what kind of surveillance equipment i mean i and I don't mean to be critical of writers who, you know, make that the, the core of their stories. I think one wonderful thing about writing mysteries and thrillers is that there is such a wide diversity in, with, within, this, within this genre and a wide variety of readers who go for all different kinds of stories. Right. No, I agree with you. Um, uh, you know, it kind of reminds me of reading Sue Grafton's novels where she kept her character in one time, it didn't age her, according to technology. Kinsey Milhone was always, you know, she had to find a telephone. There weren't cell phones. There weren't all kinds of uh, <laughs> right. technologies. Right. And, and there, there, there's something that makes that a very interesting read um, because you really have to stop and think about the, the evidence that is being portrayed by the writer and the characters. And, and you have to, because a book shouldn't just be, something that you're waiting to the end to see what happens to me as an avid reader and a lover of mysteries. I think that you should be picking up clues along the way. And sometimes the technology gets in the way, you know, we're sending it to the lab. We're going to have a DNA in 24 hours, which everybody knows isn't true. It just doesn't happen like that. (laughs) (laughs) So, So sometimes taxing your brain a little bit to follow along with the characters and pick up the clues that, that maybe, you know, like Lee Porn is picking up and, and all that you, to me really delves you deeper into the story. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but, but that's how no, I look it does. at it. Yeah. yeah I, uh, I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I look yeah, at yeah. it too. In the, the book that I'm working on now, I was, I think one reason I'm feeling the hot breath of deadline on my neck is that I was about, oh, 60% done with it when I realized I had the wrong person committing the crime. So really? Had, <laughs> this is, yes. I, this will just be between us and your millions of listeners. But so but, I thought, I mean, I, and it's, I, I have to go back and say, when you discover <laughs> something like that, other than like kicking the chairs and cursing every foul word you know, I mean, do you have to tear your book apart and go back and start filling in in different places? Or do you just change directions when you realize it? How do you fix something like that? Uh, well, actually, you do both methods. I, uh, I mean, I, well, first of all, I... I stopped writing and I went to the gym. <laughs> and I, I, I need to get, <laughs> You need I mean, to get out your frustration. Yes, I need to, I need to <laughs> I need to do something else for a while. And then it dawned on me that actually this was going to make the book better because if I had fooled myself, chances were I could fool the readers too. But I did so I didn't change a lot of it, but I did go back and develop the character who is who actually was the bad guy. De- develop that character a little more, so it wouldn't. You know, I think, like I was saying earlier, the mystery readers, 
expect you to follow the rules. And I didn't, I didn't want it to, I wanted, I wanted people to say, oh yeah, if only I'd been paying a little more attention, I could have figured this out. So anyway, I went back and developed that character a little bit more. And then I had to change a, a very wonderful scene I had written because it involved the wrong, the wrong bad guy. But all in all, I was I was glad that I figured it out when I did, and I think the book is is a lot stronger for it. You know, having you say that, and you were saying there are rules that you have to follow along when you write mysteries, reminds me of a thousand years ago when I first started reading Agatha Christie, and I'd come to the end of the story and I'd say, "Well, darn, you know, I never expected that." I <laughs> just and so my my brain wasn't wasn't um, putting together the the puzzle pieces as I was reading because I was enjoying the story and missing that part of it. So, um, and Agatha Christie was my favorite, you know, uh, that was at a time when I did not know that even though she had a bunch of characters and I liked them all, they didn't necessarily have to be read in any order. But after I read the first book, I went back and started from book one and read all the way through to book 115 or whatever it was and then realize that when you slow down and you really listen to what's going on and watch what the characters are doing it makes it you know it's more thrilling a read but you can pick up some clues then I just wasn't a savvy enough reader I don't think um to to get that so I I I'm so glad that well, you, you were that. you were in the ha- you were in the hands of a a, a master writer too. Oh, I think. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think. Yeah, I think you know p- part of the the fun of writing mysteries is to be able to slip in those clues in a way that you think now nine out of ten readers won't. They're they're waiting to see what happens. Say what happens to the the poor dog that was limping alongside of the road. So they're not going right. to pick up this this little this little thing about the bullet casing. You know, or it's right. gonna, or, you know you it's it's really it's really fun to try to outsmart people. Well, I have and of to course, you, that's I, what that's what the the villain is trying is trying to do to do to your detective. So it's all sort of of a piece. Well, absolutely. You know, the interesting thing to me is that, I, I mean, I love reading thrillers, but there's something about a really well written mystery that will that you have to just unwind everything. A thriller, you pretty much know who the bad guy is. You're just wondering what's going to happen next. Whereas a mystery, you have to pay attention. You know, you have to pay attention to each and everything that happens. And if it's really well written and the the writer catches themselves, like you were saying, oh, I, I picked the wrong bad guy. I think that it makes it a very exciting book. And sadly, I think that more people are more writers are trying to go for thrillers and mysteries when they are so much fun to read. Uh, I have such joy when I, when I finished reading yours, I, you know, just the telltale. I just loved it because it really was a mystery for me to figure out. So, you know, what now oh, you well, have, a, thank you. You have something on your page called a few of my favorite things. Can we talk about those favorite things? Sure. Sure. I don't have my website up, so if you could remind me what I put there, that would help me. (laughs) So Cottonwood Cottonwood Gulch is the first thing on your list. 
Oh, Cottonwood Gulch is it's a wonderful nonprofit program that works in uh, West Central New Mexico. That's that's where their headquarters are. They started out as kind of kind of kind of on the outward bound design where you know people go out to the wilderness and prove themselves but not that not that ferocious and part of the idea was that when people when uh this was a program both for for children and for adults and when they came besides being exposed to the outdoors and learning about hiking and native plants and native animals and how to not get bitten by snakes. They also were going to learn something about the Navajo culture. Cottonwood Gulch is right on the edge of the Raymond Navajo Reservation. And so ah. the people who opened it dealt with the with the, 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 the Raymond Navajo families, used them to help build the facility, invite them to come and teach participants um, say weaving or how to how to use native plants to make dyes, medicinal uses for um, oh berries and you know all kinds of stuff that that grows out here, and one of the um, as the program's been around I think for maybe fifty years, but recently they've started doing some work in both in Albuquerque and uh, in their at their main headquarters with uh, uh, public school kids, and the and the the idea is that a lot of these kids are never outside; their whole life is is electronics. So the the thought is let's you know show them show them where the constellations are, show them how how you can look at look in the sand and see if it's been a deer or a raccoon that has walked by here. See if you can look at animal scat and figure out you know was it a coyote and what was he eating. So it's I it's really a program it's close to my heart. It's great. Interesting. And when I was when I was working on. Um, oh, uh, the third book, whose name is escaping me. Part of that story, <laughs> part of that story involves a, a, a program that uses the outdoors, and and it was lo- loosely, loosely based on Cottonwood Gulch, Cave of Bones. Uh, that's the name of it. Yeah. Okay, I was just going to scroll through your book list to get your. <laughs> to it get was your... there in my brain. Yeah, it was. What is wood harvest? Wood harvest. Oh, wor- word harvest was a, a that yeah. was an, another thing that I did before I started writing fiction. It was a a program that uh, focused on uh, wonderful writers in New Mexico and Arizona as our presenters. It was um, we would do my business partner and I did a day on the art of writing and a day on the business of writing. And so we would bring in writers like uh, Michael McGarity. We would have loved to have had William Kent Kruger if he'd been in our part of the in our part of the world. Right, um, Ron Margaret Hart. Cole, a lot yep. of a lot of you know southwestern writers, and have yes. them uh, come and talk about 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 their craft. And then and the idea was that people would because um, Santa Fe is such a beautiful spot. That's where I live. That people would be interested in coming to Santa Fe to learn to learn about writing from the writers who lived in our part of the world. And uh, my business partner and I did that for about 10 years. We started it when my father was still alive and he would be one of, one of our presenters. And yeah, I have to say when he was alive, we would sell out every year because people just loved, not only loved his books, but he was such a fine teacher too. I bet he was a great storyteller. 
he was. He he it was just it just was as natural as breathing to him. Wow. Now, yeah. Yeah, I I'm assuming that Mr. Kruger is really caught is very far behind in his discussion with whomever. So we may have to just reschedule your portion of the interview with him. But in the meantime, you have some events coming up um, on November 22nd and 23rd. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about those events? Well, Pam, thank you so much for mentioning those. Yes, both of those events are in Las Cruces, New Mexico, which is in the southern part of the state. It's about half an hour from El Paso, Texas. And I'm doing a signing at Barnes & Noble. And then the next day, I'm doing a, a free talk, which is a benefit for a veteran's scholarship program um, that New Mexico State University offers, and um, we were we were hoping to do this event of, around Veterans Day. So I'm glad that that the um, people down there were able to get it organized. Um, my dad, a part of the reason that my dad was able to go to college was because he was a veteran, and he, uh, after he got back from World War II, uh, continued his education using the using the the GI Bill. Mm-hmm. So and he often talked about how uh how his experiences well he didn't ever really talk about his experiences in World War II but he talked about how going to college and working on the 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 paper at University of, University of Oklahoma and then working on a humor magazine how all of that really kind of morphed him from being a young man who thought he wanted to go into engineering to moving into journalism which then, of course, led to him being able to write fiction. So when they invited me to do this program down there, I was really thrilled. And I'm, I'm hoping the program is free and the idea is that when people come, what they would have spent to have heard me talk and eaten cookies and drunk, drink some punch, instead they'll donate that to help these uh, young veterans continue their education. Oh, I think that's wonderful. Um, the yeah. only thing I know about Las Cruces, because I've the only part of the Southwest I've ever been is in um, Texas, but I just remember it was the setting, supposed the movie setting for um, a Bette Midler and George Carlin movie. <laughs> that's the only thing I remember <laughs> about that from a long time ago. But I have to tell you that I, I, I will say a couple things about the desert, not because you've mentioned it. It is always astonishing to me, and this has nothing to do with book writing, that someone will post a picture of snow over a cactus in the desert. I, I find that such a, a, a contradiction in terms. But I know it does get quite cold, and in some places it does snow, correct? Correct, correct. Um, in Las, Las Cruces is about maybe two hours from Tucson, so it doesn't snow so often down there, but it's also, oh, maybe 4,000 feet. So because of the elevation, you know, in the, in the winter, they do get snow, and the Oregon Mountains, beautiful mountains, are outside Las Cruces, and they're often covered with snow. Yeah, mm. it's it's an exciting it's an exciting place to live. It's really uh, besides having the university there, it's really a a cultural crossroads. There were with, there wonderful. was a lot of yeah, it is. It's great. I've I, I sound like I work for the New Mexico Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> you do actually. It makes me want to go out there for a visit. I'm telling you, one day I'm calling you and saying, Anne, I'm passing through. I want to. You tour. bet. You bet. And I'll say, come on over, and we'll have a margarita. <laughs> 
there you go. I love that. It's even more incentive. Would you please tell listeners about your website? Sure. My, it's it's uh, my name, A-N-N-E, and Hillerman.com. Yeah, and I, I'm also on Facebook, and I love to have people like my page. We will absolutely put that out there. I am so sorry that Kent Kruger could not join us. Um, I'm going to try to reschedule this, hopefully, this week when no one has a conflicting schedule. And then you won't hear my mouth talking to Anne. You'll have hear Anne's gorgeous words while she speaks to William Kent Kruger. Anne, I can't thank you enough for spending this time with me. I think we went even further in depth with your backstory and your dad's story than we did last time we spoke. And it has been so enjoyable. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Pam. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I look forward to talking to Kent. We will get this set up. I promise you. And listeners, I want to thank you for being with me. I promise there will be a reschedule of this. Uh, Sometimes crossing over three or four time zones makes it a little bit different. uh, difficult for us all to coordinate but we'll get it together I promise and thank you again for being with me and listeners thank you and thank you mom and dad I'll see you later (laughs) 